Hi, this is Dr. Irene Tobias, and you are listening to The Airborne Mind Show. Hello, everyone. This is Ms. Bahawk. Thank you so much for joining me today, and welcome back to the show. Whether this is your first, second, tenth, or thirtieth episode, I appreciate you tuning in. Your time, your energy, your attention, and your ears mean the world to me. Without you listening, this show would not be where it is today. So once again, thank you. Before we get started, the biggest compliment that you can give is by leaving a review on iTunes. You have no idea how much that helps in terms of rankings, bringing more awareness to the show, and bringing on more interesting guests. So if you could take two or three minutes, not while you're driving, but take two or three minutes, go ahead, leave a review. It would be greatly appreciated. Also, be sure to head over to theairbornemind.com where you can check out some free resources and the full show notes there as well. Today's podcast episode is brought to you by audible.com. If you enjoy books and you are looking for something new to read, something that is relevant to problems that you're trying to solve, I made a list for you at theairbornemind.com forward slash reading list. You can see a compilation, compilation, did I say that right? Compilation of all the books that previous guests have recommended on the show. And if you decide you want to go for it, you can grab a free audiobook and 30-day free trial there as well. Once again, that is theairbornemind.com forward slash reading list. So today my guest is Dr. Irene Tobias. She is actually a part of Dr. Andy Galpin's team. So I'd like you to put your thinking caps on for this episode because we do dig into more science. We talk about uh, muscle fibers and a special protein called ANPK that Dr. Tobias is studying. What I was more particularly excited to discuss was the politics behind getting research done in the first place. So some of the obstacles and challenges that come with funding and um, how that greatly dictates what we are able to study in the first place. Um, so to get a behind-the-scenes perspective as to what that looks like, how it affects things, was really fascinating. Another area that was really fun for me to uh, learn about was female sex hormones. Definitely something that I haven't really studied too much on my own, but this is an area that Dr. Tobias has been learning more about lately, um, and she's continuing to research and uncover different things, but we started to have some dialogue around it. So we talk about female sex hormones and how it relates to training and performance. Uh, we also talk about uh, something that technology has now allowed uh, us to do something that Apple and Facebook started uh, offering benefits for, and that is uh, preserving your fertility by freezing down your eggs. So Apple and Facebook recently, you know, offered benefits to their female employees to freeze their eggs, and this correlates to the modern day trend of women getting married later 
uh, pursuing careers and, and balancing having kids with a career, uh, certainly a topic that uh, you don't really think too much about until maybe it's time to get pregnant or you're thinking about pregnancy and then some of these things start to come up. So uh, I was really excited to hear Dr. Tobias's personal story and her perspective on that. Um, so, so many exciting things that we chat about, but honestly, what I was what I love the most in this episode is how excited Dr. Irene gets when she talks about science. It is it is so similar to how I get when I'm talking about podcasting. So to hear that, you know, uh, her passion behind uh, studying and researching these different elements, uh, it, it really shows and it makes this such an enjoyable conversation. So I hope you enjoy this episode and more importantly, hope you do something with it. Irene, welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, you are somebody whose posts I read uh, quite a bit on, uh, I think it was the Invictus blog. And, oh, thank you. Yeah, and then from that point, um, I hadn't run into you for a while when I was here, and then you and Dr. Andy Galpin gave a talk, and I got to come to that talk, and it was absolutely fascinating, and then I was like, we got to get Irene on the show, so thank you for being here. Oh, no problem, yeah. Um, yeah. So I'd love to just kind of get into your background a little bit, and you know, give some context to the audience as to uh, you know what you do, what you've been involved in, and just kind of how you roll. Okay, great. So um, yeah, I guess uh, I am a postdoctoral researcher. So that means that I completed my PhD and this is sort of, um, some people kind of consider it a little bit of limbo. Traditionally it was done before you go on to become a professor, but a lot of people will do it now and then go work for industry afterwards or they'll use it to segue into something else. I mean, it, and it's becoming a lot more common to do it. People used to kind of go straight from a PhD to becoming a professor, and that's kind of more rare now. Right. Um, but yeah, I'm working with Dr. Andy Galpin. Um, kind of interesting like how I connected with him, but I had heard him interviewed on you know one of my favorite podcasts, Barbell Shrugs, right. and a lot of people know him from that, and I was really fascinated by a lot of the things he had to say. And then when I got to become a little more familiar with about his research, when they actually went to interview him at his lab, Okay. I was sort of like, whoa, holy shit, like he studies actual muscle at the right. molecular protein level uh -huh. and he uses a lot of the same biochemistry techniques I used in my PhD. This is really fascinating, this is really cool. And so I sort of was like, all right, I just finished my PhD, I'm going to take some time off over the summer and it's like, my original plan was to go jump in working for industry and then I was sort of like, you know, I don't, I don't know if I really want to go do that right now. I think mm -hmm. I want to go work for this guy I heard on the radio. Yeah. That sounds like more fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I happened to email him and he actually got right back to me and we worked out a situation where I jumped on to his team and found a, happened to find a really great project that kind of fit with the themes of what the lab is interested in and mm -hmm. he was super interested in it and we've kind of formed this really good team working together us and then our other collaborator dr jimmy bagley up at san francisco and we all sort of 
come in with different expertise and uh, different backgrounds. I mean, Andy is this expert in muscle physiology, exercise physiology. Uh, Jimmy studied that as well, but he also is much more, has more expertise at muscle in the cellular level. So he does a lot of imaging experiments on muscle fibers, mm -hmm. finds the myonuclei, translates that into knowledge. And then my expertise is the biochemistry, so the molecules. So even a smaller level, the proteins that are going on that are, you know, their gene expression is changing based on training you do, epigenetics, that sort of thing. So combining all those aspects together forms just a really good perspective in studying what we want to go after, which is studying human performance. That, that's the cool thing, right, mm -hmm. is that uh, you guys are digging deep into human performance and training in a way that in the past we really haven't seen that type of research kind of done, right? Like mm -hmm. we may have scratched the surface, but sure. now we have a very interesting lens you know, from you sure. guys uh, to be able to view and, and research that stuff. Sure, sure. I mean, there's certainly been lots of research on more traditional sports science, so where people will study, you know, okay, how many reps of this particular lift or what sort of training adaptations does that get? You know, more on a physiological level, but actually going in and taking muscle samples out of people and studying, breaking down the cells and looking at the proteins, which generally takes more money to study that kind of thing, it takes mm -hmm. more funding. Um, that type of research has been done much more on a clinical side. Okay. So typically those subjects are diabetic, or have some type of metabolic disorder, or if they're the controls, they're recreationally active. Mm. What exactly does that mean? You know, that's kind of like a catch-all. But um, we haven't really used that type of technique or research to study people that are at the opposite end of the health spectrum. People like these CrossFit athletes, these right. MMA athletes, people that are kind of pushing the boundaries yeah. of human performance. And there's just, there's so much knowledge to be gained from that. You know, at this point, we don't know what it could lead to, but I mean, that's the way science works. Right. You don't know, you know, what you're studying now, what that might translate into 10, 20 years from now. But I think there's certainly things we can learn from studying the physiology of people that are doing really, really well. I mean, in any health aspect, whether yeah. it's physical performance, whether it's people that are aging really well, mm -hmm. whether people that have really, really excellent mental acuity or just ability to, to deal with stress or don't get PTSD, you right. know, coming back. I mean, those are the people we want to understand better. And then maybe there's stuff we can learn out of that that could help other people. Right. You know? um, so I'm just curious, some of the yeah. stuff that we talked about or you guys talked about sure. in the talk you gave. Um, a lot of that was kind of, that's not like out to the public and mainstream yet, right? Like a lot of that is maybe kind of a preview as to what might unravel in the next several months or even yeah. years actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Andy is very open about, that's another thing that I really like about working with him is that he is really, really skilled at communicating yeah. his science or his, you know, interpretations of science and understanding things to the general public. Mm. That's a huge problem in academic science these days, you know, that I definitely encountered in grad school. And I think a big, you know, problem is that a lot of these brilliant scientists out there cannot communicate to the general public. Layman's terms. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they can't break it down. It's actually a really good exercise in how well you understand True, what yeah. you're actually doing if you can avoid using the jargon. Because the concepts, certainly in biology, when you really, really break them down, 
there you can understand them. Mm. Like people with you know just an educational background in any area could get what's going on. Right. But once you start throwing lots of jargon out there, people just get turned off. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think I mean it's a huge problem. Like you know the public connecting with what science is actually doing, with what we're funding, you know, the whole field of cancer research is kind of a mess, mm -hmm. you know, because a lot of what gets done actually is incorrect. Right. There's so many biochemistry studies out there that are actually wrong, uh -huh. and it gets us going down the paths of studying the wrong proteins, the wrong connecting, you know, it's just... It, it, there's a reason that advances in terms of treating cancer have not right. really kept up with all the money that we've been throwing at it. That, that's like the next thing that I want to yeah. highlight on because I think most of us, when we think of researching something, we're like, oh, well, you know, why don't you just research it, right? But it's way more complicated than oh, that. Yeah. It, it takes money to do that, yeah. and the money yeah. doesn't really grow on trees. No. You have to be able no. to get funding. Technology is super expensive as well, yeah. right? So could you tell me a little bit about maybe a behind-the-scenes look at that process of what maybe it looks like to get funding, how, how difficult it is to kind of get uh, yeah. your research even in the door and start it? Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's a huge challenge. As a scientist, you are up against challenges coming at you from every aspect. I mean, certainly the funding is a big one, you know, getting it. So you have to be able to produce some preliminary studies mm -hmm. to get funding, but then you need money for the preliminary yeah. studies too. And then you have to wait for these specific times of year that funding grants get put out there. That's but, why it takes so long. Yeah, larger agencies, and then often there's like such a bureaucracy in the process that it'll take a while for the money to actually like get, you know, right. contributed to you if you get it. It's very rare, actually, that you, most of these days you, you submit a grant and you basically expect not to get it. Okay. Uh, for the bigger ones, like when you submit for like NIH or NSF, the National Science Foundation, or even DOD, a lot of investigators these days are having to resubmit. So it's like you don't get it the first time, you get reviews, and then you have to, you know, rewrite things, submit it on the next round, right. maybe it gets accepted on the third round. It's such a long, frustrating process. And then, I mean, there's also the nature of what you're studying. Biology doesn't cooperate. Yeah. <laughs> it, it really doesn't. I mean, you, you think you, you've controlled all the factors, but there's a lot of things that are often out of your control. Yeah. And so you, you're constantly troubleshooting, retooling your methods, you know, combating all the, the, the proteins that, that I hate, the, the phosphatases mm -hmm. and the proteases. If anybody knows anything about them, they just like wreck your experiments. Oh, wow. Because it's like after you break up and open the cell, they'll go and like eat the proteins you're interested in or like take the phosphates off the ones you want to study. Yeah, they're, they're So what happens yeah. when uh, like you can't get a grant, right? Does that kill your study completely? How do you, what's um, the other option? It, it depends. So it, maybe it depends on how... <laughs> interested to study you're like how crucial the study how much you believe in it and how much you really think it's it's gonna go forward and, mm. and get get you future funding so I mean right now we have a study going on that we're super pumped about we've gotten some really interesting preliminary data out of one subject okay yours truly <laughs> that's a pretty cool thing that's another reason I jumped into the science is that the ability to study real live humans yeah. at the molecular cellular level out of muscle cells, right. you know, 
uh, so different than the standard things of what I did in grad school for my PhD were all in cell cultures. So these mutant cells that have grown in culture for mm -hmm. decades, human cells that have 82 chromosomes. I mean, how human is that? <laughs> you really have to ask yourself, what is that relevant? Um, you know, and it's those are the models we're often stuck with, you know, or, you know, brain cells in a dish or mice and rats. Yeah. And, and um, you know, you get information out of that. But to actually study things that are going on in real humans and in response to exercise and training, that to me was just super cool. So you kind of geek out on the aspect of like, this is my protein out of my muscle cells. Right. This is so cool. <laughs> but yeah, no, we, we, we ultimately want to take these preliminary results. We'll, we'll get one paper out of them, like a yeah. really solid kind of methods oriented paper because we're using an entirely new technique to study the proteins, right. new technology that's really improving what we can actually figure out. Yeah. Um, but eventually we want to expand to studying more subjects, multiple subjects, so you can infer a lot more information about like the training they're doing. Um, and that would be like you know, more subjects, you more money. Sure. Kind of thing. I think that brings up an interesting uh, point that Dr. Andy Galpin made during his talk was that you know, our comprehension of maybe what is possible and yeah. what is impossible is greatly uh, limited by the technology that we have available, right? Sure. So like one of the concepts, I think it was hyperplasia that yep. uh, for years and years and decades uh, was considered a myth and it was impossible um, until recently, now that we have the technology to measure it, sure. it's proving to be possible. Sure. <laughs> and, and, and how many other things are there out there yeah. that we kind of write off as impossible yeah. that you know, we just have not reached the point where that technology is available yet to measure that type of stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, that, for sure. Um, on our project, that's something that we definitely took advantage of, kind of a unique, rare opportunity that I ran into last fall. Uh, a friend of mine who's an entrepreneur in the bio biotech world right. let me know about this, well, this company that her startup got sold to, and they were basically pioneering this... Um, new technology for studying proteins out of cells that is replacing this decades-old technique that every biochemist around the world does Western blotting to measure proteins. Okay. You know, and we've been really limited in how we can study them, how, how quantifiable it can be, how reliable. We actually have much better techniques for studying RNA and DNA molecules because we can actually amplify those molecules to like, so that the one we are looking at isn't such a big percentage yeah. that then we can detect it. But proteins, we can't amplify. We're stuck with what we got mm -hmm. out of the cell. So we, uh, we came into contact with this company and we got them to do a demo on um, our muscle fiber cells. Yeah. And what we were really interested in was being able to study proteins out of a single fiber. Okay. So this is a big deal because Typically in our field, muscle biopsy studies have been done at the whole muscle level, so the mixture of fiber types. If you listen to any of Andy Galpin's talks, he will go into great detail about fast twitch versus slow twitch fibers. Right. And you know the, how they adapt and change with training. It really isn't your genetics that's defining what you have. Which is another crazy concept that yeah, we've believed yeah, for a long time. Yeah, that yeah. people have kind of overturned more recently. 
but also that you're not entirely all one fiber or the other. Your, your human muscle is actually a mixture, ultimately. Mm. You'll have a fast twitch fiber right next to a slow twitch fiber, and the composition is what can vary. You can be like 70% fast twitch, or maybe you're only 30% fast twitch, 50% slow twitch, and then 10% of like some of the hybrid varieties. Yeah. And that can be like, that can change with what you do, that you know changes between training, types of training. Uh, but so people were kind of being oblivious to whether, you know, they were just looking at the whole mixed population and they weren't seeing the differences between mm. the different fiber types. So we were like, if we could actually study proteins out of a single fiber, because we can identify the fiber types, like very precisely, very rigorously with the methods his lab has used for like the past five years. Um, but then if we can then go back to that sample and like the single cell sample and like be like, okay, now we're gonna look at the protein we're interested in mm -hmm. and how it differs in one type versus another. And Got so it. that's huge. And that's kind of changing the paradigm of how we study muscle Got ultimately, okay. is that we need to look through this fiber type specific lens because definitely, for example, the protein we're studying is a major metabolic regulator. Like it turns on all sorts of processes of your metabolism, like uh, how you adapt to training, right. gene expression, all sorts of cool shit. Okay. I mean, it's a very hotly studied enzyme too. Like it right. has interest in terms of like, uh, clinical uh, side of things, it gets turned on by exercise, and PK, so this is a protein. But uh, if, if you're studying a regulator of metabolism, and you know that fast twitch and slow twitch fibers have very, very different metabolic properties, you want to study it and yeah. how it differs between the two fibers, because there's going to be a lot of information you'd miss out of just studying a whole muscle sample. So we're able to isolate it a mm -hmm. little bit better. We can isolate the fibers and we can like, essentially lower the limit of our detection with the new technology that allows us to actually measure that protein got it, got in, it, got it. in a single fiber muscle. Okay. So, so yeah, that's huge. Part of, I guess, what you guys are also digging into, something that we've we've seen that uh can be done when we look at crossfit athletes right they can be super well conditioned and mm -hmm. super strong at yeah. the same time and when we go back to the textbooks and maybe research a lot of it uh you know it, it kind of conflicts right mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. that's an area where you guys are starting to shift that paradigm a little bit as you yeah. research more what yeah. are some other areas or what are some bigger picture things for you guys that you would like to see in the next several years? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so that's a huge one. Again, we're studying something that very few other people are, you know, human performance, but at the elite athlete end of things. Like, mm -hmm. so if you do look at the literature, pretty much if you see athletes used in studies, they're prominently pretty much all uh, endurance athletes. Which you is know. also like a bias. Yeah, thing, that's right? a bias. That's that's definitely been seen in you know more mainstream perceptions and also in in science that yeah. fitness is endurance. Right. And you know all of us have sort of learned on the CrossFit end of things is that it encompasses so much more. Yeah. You know, and people are starting to learn that now. And then also it you know your fiber type is very reflective of mm -hmm. like. Do you do strictly endurance? Are you more, you know, but we don't know as much about the fiber types in um, strength and power athletes. And then as we call concurrently trained athletes. Right. So CrossFitters, MMA athletes, uh, fighters, 
people that have to be really well conditioned, mm -hmm. but also really strong at the same time. So that's kind of a whole new population of athletes that nobody's ever looked at. Um, and then, yeah, so we know that fast switch fibers are typically more in sprinters, um, most likely more in Olympic weightlifters, people that have to exert a lot of force in a small amount of time. Because mm -hmm. the fast twitch fibers, they, they're called fast because they have a faster contractile speed Got it. That, that you can measure. So you can see how that's directly advantageous to, to that type of training. Mm -hmm. But whereas a slow twitch fiber typically has more mitochondria, is going to be able to fuel a longer period of time. Got it. So yeah, there's a lot of interesting things to be found there. Um, but yeah, eventually translating what we're doing, you know, when we get the funding, yeah. Yeah, that's a major, you know, roadblock, um, to studying these athletes that, that would learn a lot from for sure. Uh, and another paradigm we want to change, you know, again, like we haven't studied these athlete populations, but there's very little studies done on women. Yeah. That's so, that was the yeah. thing I found fascinating yeah. is, um, yeah. well, so why, why is that, right? Why, why is it that yeah. we haven't studied women and, yeah. and it's been kind of biased towards males? Sure, sure. So it's, it's actually a bigger problem, not just in human subjects, but biomedical science as a whole. Okay. Typically, we've studied more male subjects, we say rats or, rats or mice, mm -hmm. than female subjects. Um, and it's not like it's a sexism type of thing going right. on there you know it's actually more the perception that women are more complicated got it <laughs> they're more variable potentially with their hormones mm -hmm. and there's more unknowns and i guess as i like to say it you know scientists like to go after the lower hanging fruit mm -hmm. the things that you know we can study with less control and variable and then you know, men are the lower hanging fruit. Right. That's, <laughs> that's, that's literally reality. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's more the reason. I mean, and it, people will tend to go after, okay, these are the standard types of subjects you'll use. And not only is it men, typically they're like around college age or easily recruitable or something God. like that. Or again, the clinical populations, right. people with diabetes. You do see some uh, studies with older women, like postmenopausal women, but again, that's sort of like the hormone issue, right? You know, so at that point, there's just the perception that you know the hormones like aren't going to be contributing to things. Mm -hmm. But there's so many other factors to control, and I mean, the other thing is like men's testosterone levels—they can be widely different too. You yeah. know, they can fluctuate throughout the day. Right. So you know, it's kind of just the the way things are done, but yeah. we want to, you know, we want to change that and um, we want to start to, you know, innovate around that because sure. I think there's a lot of interesting things to learn about uh, female physiology uh, from a performance standpoint that Absolutely. might be very different from male physiology, especially in this day and age where we have so many more women going after strength, going after high intensity, you know, competing in very intense sports. Which I think we should take a second to yeah. like really let that sink in because yeah. Uh, yeah, it's kind of normal to us now, especially if you are in the CrossFit gym or you do weightlifting, like everybody around you is involved in that kind of culture. But in the grand scheme of things, when we look at like 20 years ago, right, what was, what training looked like 
in general, but then mm -hmm. also what it looked like typically maybe for women or what they were gravitating towards. Sure. Very, you know, vastly different, For right? sure, for sure. Yeah, I mean, now it's cool to lift heavy weights. Yeah. You know, now it's cool to have muscle mass. Women are pursuing muscle, mm -hmm. you know, where before it was like, oh, I don't want to look bulky or something like that. It's more like, no, I don't actually care how much I weigh. I just care about having lean body mass, right. you know, and it's allowing me to do so many other things. It's just setting up my health, like, so much better on a lot of aspects mm -hmm. and uh yeah yeah so but again like also the on the like professional athlete side of things like it's pretty cool i think about the two sports crossfit and then mma with yeah. the ufc fighters where the women are actually generating the same amount of fan interest oh yeah that, that and, that's also huge. yeah yeah and then they're getting paid as much as the men too right. there's very few other sports I can think about where that's the case yeah you know wow so okay so and what's kind of the limiting factor is, is does it kind of come down to funding it does come down to funding it comes down to again the controls uh the study we're foreseeing doing we would love to do a population of trained men and a population of trained women um interval training that type of that type of stuff um we probably to be take a conservative approach on our first study uh would have the women specifically come on like day one through six of the start of their menstrual cycle mm -hmm. uh, to try and normalize because those are the factors that people often like shy away from if you do see a study that has female subjects there's often like a clause you read in the methods that says the women came in on these specific days and you can imagine as a researcher how that gets very difficult with scheduling, you know, Got it. subjects. But we have, I mean, I have a grad student working with me who is an MMA fighter herself. Okay. Incredibly charged up about what we're doing and has already, like, started recruiting people she trains with. And a lot of girls, like, come up to us all the time, like, when is Dr. Galpin going to study women? Like, if we have enough interested parties and people that, you know, can comply with, like, the protocols and the mm -hmm. controls we set... I mean, we can do it, right. you know, where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, but eventually, I mean, again, we getting idea of how much variability we get right. out of, you know, the, the enzyme we're studying, how much is it affected by something like estradiol? Mm -hmm. You know, that, that still remains to be a question. And I have seen some papers where the men's air bar is much tighter and then the women's air bar, if they didn't control for things like birth control or menstrual cycle, the air of our sometimes looks higher. Got so, it. you know, that, that is again, the challenge to get around. And it, it, again, it depends on what you're studying. I mean, mm -hmm. something like fiber type, I don't think that's likely to change, you know, based on, you know, again, you'd have to study it specifically, but an end, like the enzyme we're studying, which is a metabolic regulator and it gets activated by exercise, but I've seen other studies where they've treated mice with estradiol right. um, or even cell cultures. And they've shown activation of AMPK as well. And, and what, like, what does that mean? Uh, so, so turning on the enzyme's activity. Got it. So it actually goes and does its work. Gotcha. Like phosphorylates things, uh, things that you, you would do in response to exercise. So you're, you're drastically lowering your ATP mm -hmm. and you're making these you know, degradation products of ATP, the AMP and the ADP, so the single... Uh, phosphate and the diphosphate forms, right. they bind to the enzyme, 
enzyme gets turned on, and then it goes to signal to turn on processes that generate more ATP and turn off processes that consume ATP. Got it. So that's kind of like what it does. It's, it's like it acutely responding to the situation at hand. So really important, you know, yeah. obviously, if you're going to be able to keep <laughs> living <Right. laughs> when you're, um, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. Like, so uh, I know you, Dr. Andy Galvin mentioned this is relevant to the window of gains. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So like uh, how we say that protein or whatever has to be consumed uh, within 30 minutes, right? Or mm -hmm. some people say an hour, but mm -hmm. it could be shorter or longer based off some of the things you guys are studying. Sure. The other thing is recovery, right? What you just yeah. kind of said, does that impact recovery? Uh, yeah, so I, I'm, I don't know as much on that end of it. Okay. Again, the enzyme has tons of different targets. Yeah. It does tons of cool shit, really. Um, but, uh, you know, some of the more specific substrates that I do know about are ones that, you know, it actually turns off proteins that are responsible for synthesizing your fatty acid chains, your glycogen, so where we store energy. By turning off those proteins, it actually turns on processes that allow us to break them down. It's kind of mm. like, a lot of things in biology can sometimes work that way. It's right. kind of like a different way of, you know, linking it. Yeah. Uh, however it was come up with. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and then uh, another target of AMPK is, um, it has a terrible name, I can't even say the whole thing, <laughs> TBC1D1 and TBC1D4. Wow. Yeah, okay. yeah, no, I, I, like I, for, for what they, those acronyms actually stand for is something ridiculous. Like sometimes <laughs> you get these crazy names in biology and people can't even agree on a name, like, and they'll fight over it and, you know. I think we should change it to window of gains. <laughs> yeah, right. W-O-G-Z. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they actually do some really cool stuff. They feed AMPK into the insulin signaling pathway. Mm -hmm. So that's responsible for taking up glucose out of the bloodstream. So again, the theme is you're turning on processes that give you more ATP, give Got you it. more energy. And so what's, what's happened, why it relates to the window of gains, a lot of people like think of that and they're like, oh, the best time for me to ingest proteins and carbs is right after I work out. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason is because AMPK has been turned on specifically in your muscle cells. So the cells where you're drastically lowering your ATP, you're doing a lot of work, you're exerting yourself. And so those cells are then primed by AMPK specifically to take up more glucose. So in that period of time, then you can maximize your, you know, your nutrition intake and more to your muscle cells versus your fat cells. So then it, you know, not just for performance, people that are trying to lose weight, right. that's like a more advantageous time for them to be ingesting carbs. Got it, got it. Um, so that's kind of the mechanism behind that. But again, people think about it as like roughly an hour or so, right? you know, after you train and if, oh, if you miss the window of gains, well, you know, you're done for or something yeah. like that. But you, you don't really know that as much. And how could it be different in a different fiber type, like in a slow twitch versus a fast twitch? Is it more prolonged in one versus the other? And maybe that has implications for the type of athlete or the type of training you do. Right. Like if you do more endurance training, 
what does your window of gains look like or does it even matter you got know? it um or you know if you do more concurrent or if you do just more st strictly strength training right you know so so there's interesting stuff to find out there in terms of performance questions but i also just think it's really super fucking cool you yeah know? <laughs> yeah and, and and i think uh beyond window of gains this also affects maybe how we view nutrition in general right overall that's something yeah. I think Dr. Galpin mentioned towards the end. He's like, this is maybe years from now, but all this could kind of lead into, yeah, how is nutrition playing a role, you know, when we kind of combine it with performance, taking a more objective look at that maybe? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm certainly not an expert on the nutritional yeah, side. No, no. That's definitely <laughs> his, his area of expertise. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, uh, making your nutrient intake yeah. more valuable or uh you know for people that are competing at a very high level and just have to like keep all of these factors very tightly controlled you know any information they can get i think they're always looking for that yeah so. um so an area that you've been interested in mm -hmm. and that you are currently studying and researching more about is um female sex hormones and yeah. how that kind of relates into training and performance right sure um, sure so maybe like where did that interest kind of stem yeah, for you yeah. uh, and, and what's kind of, give us a little bit of context behind Yeah, like. Yeah, so, so definitely I think hormones are super cool. Like they're really interesting, very tightly controlled regulators in your body. Mm -hmm. And like they're almost, because they were designed by biology, they're so much more precise and almost like more predictable than a drug that man designs. Right. You know, there's a reason that birth control, when you use it as prescribed or hormonal birth control works like almost 98, 99% of the time. Um, but uh, there's a lot less known about the female hormones, certainly in response to performance or training than testosterone so there's all sorts of experts you'll hear i've heard them on lots of podcasts that will talk about testosterone you know and optimizing that you know sleep deprivation how that hits it and it's a really interesting thing yeah. you know it's a super cool hormone you know it's a sexy hormone sure. <laughs> <laughs> but i've never heard an expert talk about the female hormones right and it's like gotten me or, or interested like a lot of things it's like well you know you want something done go, go out and learn it yourself so right i'm i'm starting to delve into that i mean that you know women i guess are more complicated on the end that they have two hormones that right. are principally contributing so estradiol and progesterone and you can roughly i mean can kind of think about it in realms of like estrogen is like the sexy one like makes tits you know yeah. <laughs> everybody likes that you know <laughs> okay cool and it you know increases libido and all sorts of other you know sex related things right uh progesterone on the other hand is more for like maintaining pregnancy got it and it's kind of the one people also think or in relation to the ratio of progesterone to estrogen um, can often contribute to like PMS. Okay. So it's kind of the sucky like downer mood. Sure. Hormone. So yeah, that kind of sucks. But um, the the thing is like, what estrogen? Well, estrogen specifically because it's a little bit more analogous to testosterone in terms of like, you know, um, what it does. You know, on that sort of hormonal axis. Um, 
what are some of the performance you know implications of it i think are a really interesting question yeah uh one thing that really differs between men and women that i didn't realize at first is that yes men have more testosterone but they actually have if you actually look break down the units of how we measure those hormones on a blood test testosterone is measured with different units nanograms okay. per deciliter so that's actually tenfold higher than estrogen uh, measurement units. So estrogen is measured as picograms per mil. Okay. So if you know your metric system, well, some of them are more odd units, you right. know, but there's a tenfold difference between them. So you look at the numbers and you actually have to multiply things. And women have like way lower estrogen than men do testosterone if you actually look at like the mass per sure. concentrate the concentration measurements. And women's testosterone levels are actually more in a similar range with their estrogen. Okay. Which is actually I I found that and then men have really, really low estrogen. Got it. So so that's you know, that's the big difference there. But it almost makes you wonder, you know, what what if women had estrogen at the same level that men had testosterone? Yeah, what would happen? Yeah, yeah, would there <laughs> be interesting effects there? Um, again, that's that's kind of you know unknown, but there have been some studies I've seen done with animal models that have shown like estrogen promotes fat loss, you know, uh, that there can be potential performance benefits out of that, and right. it's been looked at for like a treatment for postmenopausal women trying to lose weight, you know, trying to improve their bone density, things like that. Got so, it. Uh, so yeah, that's that's definitely an interesting realm and. Um, and also, again, the question of how that relates to what we're studying and wanting to study female athletes sure. and control for those hormonal variations. Um, and then another question, I mean, I think is, is certainly interesting to a lot of women these days in terms of how our society has changed a lot mm -hmm. um, is the, comp the notion of fertility. Yeah. Like, I'm glad you touched on that yeah. because I totally would have, like, overlooked it. But you're right. It is, it is something that... Um, it is definitely a fascinating topic to dig into. Um, sure, yeah, let's, sure. Let's get into it. Yeah, so, I mean, we're living in an age where women are generally, as a trend, getting married later mm -hmm. and having kids later or delaying childbirth. Uh, a lot of times for professional reasons, they're becoming more involved in their careers. Mm -hmm. And uh, the thing is, that's a great change of society, but biology doesn't keep up with changes in society right. you know um and again it's 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 often more on the axis that women that are more educated are going after these high-powered careers are the ones that are delaying the childbirth right and again having you know trouble um having kids in your 40s you can that's a, a big i think divergence between genders is that pretty much most all men in their 40s can have children right it's kind of expected, even their 50s or 60s. But most women in their 40s, unless maybe it's their early 40s, can't. Right. You know, uh, and it's it's a huge you know um, you know question. I think a lot of women grapple with in their 30s of like, when do I have kids? You know, how do I balance it with my career? How do I make this work? And any options that there are to preserve your fertility or make it as good as long as you can, mm -hmm. as hormonally responsive, as healthy, um, that any anything you can do to do after that. And I mean, I think it's interesting, uh, strength training for one thing, 
I think it's often overlooked at in that aspect, but one of the biggest con uh, like causes of infertility out there is a condition known as polycystic ovarian syndrome. Okay. So it um, it involves like your your ovaries have all these cysts in them. You're actually making um, I think way more estrogen than than you should be, and it's also tied to insulin resistance. So typically, patients with that condition will have metabolic disorders as well. And so people have been looking into treating it by improving the overall insulin hormonal access. So doing strength training, you know, getting more muscle mass, uh, doing high intensity interval training, things you know, yeah. we do all the time. And that improving the, you know, getting better insulin sensitivity could also lead to better hormonal sensitivity or better hormonal regulations. So you can actually induce ovulation, yeah. get pregnant, so things like that. So, you know, that's definitely an interesting thing. But still, you know, there's, there's a lot that's out of your control. You can't actually control your eggs, the age of your eggs. Right. You know, that's something that is ultimately often the limiting factor for a lot of women, um, that actually their uterus is still healthy and functional typically in their 40s. But if their eggs just, you know, are... You know, you get more genetic abnormalities the older they get. I mean, as a woman, you're born with all your eggs, mm -hmm. uh, whereas men, like, continuously are making more sperm all the time. Right. Um, so, so that's a big difference there. Um, but, yeah, so, so it's, it's, like, an interesting question. And now, like, again, technology, as we get better at it, allows us to solve these problems in some way, shape, or form, in yeah. an imperfect way, but, you know, moving in, in certain directions. And so um, I guess on a more personal side of things, um, I actually, in the past year, I went through the process of freezing down my eggs. It, um, you know, more from this perspective of, like, even if I never use them, yeah. it's like having that peace of mind like that yeah. you had some control over some aspect of your life that, you know, a lot of it is out of your control. But mm -hmm. if there's one thing that you can do, it just it changes how you think. Sure. In yeah. a lot of ways, you know. Um, so I read about like a year ago about how Apple and Facebook were finally starting to offer benefits to their female employees to freeze their eggs based on this new ability of the technology uh, to solve the problem of one of the biggest problems in the process was the actual freezing of the eggs. So the idea is like the egg is one of the largest cells in your body mm -hmm. behind muscle fibers, I guess, <laughs> really big. but the egg has a lot of water in it. Yeah. So like anything, you know, when you, when you thaw ice cubes, you get crackling, all sorts of things like that. So when you would thaw an egg cell, the water would cause ice crystals and it would die. Okay. And so they discovered a way to freeze the eggs that was almost like a more dry freezing, like they call it a vitrification process. And it would get rid of the water, and then they would actually be more viable, like 80% after, after the fact. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a huge advance. It's still, like, you definitely have to say every time you cover this that it is no guarantee, you right. know, and no doctor will ever tell you that, you know. Um, the more eggs you can get, the better your chances are, because again, everything is like a, a you know, probability. Yeah. 
um, that like some of them survive this stage and then a certain percentage of those survive the next stage, you know, through the whole, it's essentially an in vitro fertilization process. Got it. Um, but uh, it's, yeah, I mean, I think it was super interesting. I actually totally geeked out on the whole, like on my end being like a biochemist and interested in hormones and learning through that, going through that experience because you're essentially doping yourself with a right. ton of different <laughs> hormones. And so like going through that firsthand and experiencing it, you learn a lot about the hormones in the process. Um, it's, I think it's, it ties into like, you know, the bodybuilders or the athletes that, that dope or that do it really well are actually really good biochemists. Yeah, right. <laughs> they, they actually are, you know, they, they understand a lot about it and they, they read up on little things because they're always trying to optimize it. So yeah, rogue endocrinology, I think it's an interesting topic as well. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. But going through that process, you also learn about just some baseline of, of what your fertility is, which a lot of women don't know about until the point that they're trying to get pregnant or uh -huh. having trouble getting pregnant. And there, there's like a estradiol blood test that you do. It's like standardized on day two or day three of your menstrual cycle. Again, it has to be at a specific time. And you want to see that the, the levels are low so that they can be responsive later on. And then also another marker is like the follicle count. So your eggs, um, when they're about ready to mature and, and ovulate, they, there's like about, hopefully about 20 of them or so in each ovary that are starting to be in these follicles or maturing. And the counts of those are another good indi indication of like your chances of conceiving and that sort of thing. So, I mean, it was super interesting stuff to learn. I ultimately learned that have really, really good fertility, okay. <laughs> um, which is an excellent thing. Yeah. Hopefully it's a sign that what I've been doing in the gym has, has really paid off. And um, hopefully, you know, I won't even need to use the, the frozen eggs. You right. know, you, you could still try and get pregnant in your late 30s, early 40s. I mean, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's still an imperfect process, but it's something we're starting to change. And I think, you know, I want to see where the technology goes, certainly in the, in the next 10 years, because like, you look at society ultimately and you're like, well, if it's the, the women that are highly educated and, you know, going after their careers, are those the ones we want selectively eliminated <laughs> from the population? <laughs> right. Uh, you know, is, is another way of looking at it. But yeah, yeah, that was, that was certainly, and I actually, this was kind of crazy. I even got a, a muscle biopsy sample out of the point that I was, because you get on really high, you make a ton of estrogen yeah. in the process of going through, because you're doping with hormones that induce the production of estrogen. Got it. In your ovaries. And so you end up experiencing like tenfold higher estrogen levels than at the peak of your menstrual cycle. So wow. yeah, yeah, you're, you're pretty high. You actually get kind of high from it because <laughs> it has like some dopaminergic effect as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're like, hey, we're interested in this question of whether estradiol activates AMPK in muscle cells. Let's take a biopsy, like, right. you know, and see it at this really high level. And if there aren't, you know, are there any effects? So, you know, it was kind of like a one rare opportunity in science to see, like, oh, I got to go do that. You know? There you go, yeah. <laughs> um, all those markers that you just mentioned, mm -hmm. right, are these all things that people can go, like, test? Yeah, okay. yeah. No, I mean, and I think, you know, the way we're starting to adapt to 
people wanting to know more about their own health, to take control of their own health and get blood tests, you know, that aren't necessarily prescribed by the doctor. You know, I think it's kind of silly, though, why you have to get a prescription for a blood test. Yeah. You know, it's just like, you know, I think people like some people are concerned about like, oh, like, is the patient going to be able to interpret the results or not? There's Google, right? Like, yeah. You know, people, <laughs> you don't need an MD to really interpret where you are in the, the range of whatever, right? The, you know, if that's a flag or not, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think you know, people can certainly there, there's that test. I mean, for the follicle count, like you know, you, you need a like an ultrasound and stuff to do that, right? But um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's certainly an area you know society does you know because fertility is a problem ultimately for everyone Mm -hmm. you know for for couples you know trying to conceive it's it's really really sad ultimately you know what what that causes later on and and yeah yeah how um so if we were to think you remember how you mentioned like if estrogen levels are were tenfold higher right what what happens when estrogen levels are either too high or too low in terms of maybe how you kind of feel right throughout day to day is there yeah. any side effects essentially? yeah sure sure there's i mean again it's complicated yeah <laughs> uh a lot of it is more i think the ratio of estrogen to progesterone okay um which fluctuates throughout right. the period of the month and that can contribute to things like pms okay you know, that women experience and you know uh um mood mood effects certainly mood effects from birth control that is widely different for so many different women one type of birth control will work for one and not for the other Mm -hmm. or they'll just have really really awful mood side effects and they you know have to change and stuff like that um yeah yeah it's kind of funny when they they started testing was it the male hormonal birth control recently oh yeah i heard about that yeah and and the male subjects had to to stop the study because they had too many mood effects no way yeah they they, they couldn't handle it that's hilarious so i mean i guess that brings up a relevant question which is like how do we optimize and and make sure that uh we're those ratios, the estrogen to progesterone mm-hmm. ratio, is is kept at a healthy level, which in sure. turn, uh, sure. you know, uh, will help with the whole fer- fertility thing that we were just yeah, talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well. well, I guess, uh, yeah. It's it's. I think it's not so much those ratios in, in fertility. Again, it's a complicated process, yeah. and I'm still learning more about it myself. But it's almost more the responsiveness. Got like it. if on day two or day three your estrogen is too high then it's not kind of quite it's the fluctuations in these hormones that will produce the signals that trigger ovulation got it ultimately um whereas like like hormonal birth control works in a ways where they kind of stay more constant right you know or progesterone stays more constant like some people think it's almost like tricking your body into thinking you're pregnant okay like all the time yeah you know um but yeah, that that's you know it's the fluctuations you experience when you're not on birth control that ultimately leads to you know getting pregnant and right. stuff like that. Yeah. So I mean, if we kind of look outside of even fertility, you know how uh, when we're talking about testosterone and, yeah. and you hear the buzzword like adrenal fatigue, right? Sure. There's things that we're trying to do to make sure that your testosterone levels aren't yeah. going super low yeah. and things like that. Yeah. Um, is there is is that something? Is there something similar for females? Yeah, like, again, hasn't been studied okay, so much, you know. <laughs> we haven't studied women as much, you know, certainly right. as, as subjects. Um, 
But yeah, I think there's definitely, there's a lot that I really want to look into more yeah. in the literature. I'm kind of just getting started on this process. But I've even seen some studies that have suggested like differences in training adaptations at one phase of the cycle versus a different one. Uh-huh. So like you kind of break up the menstrual cycle into two phases, the follicular phase going between like the start of your period to um, when you ovulate. Okay. And then after that, it's a different type of phase when progesterone goes really high called the luteal phase. And so there's kind of like, how could your training be different in those two, two phases of a cycle? And how could it be different between a woman on birth control or not on birth control? You know, I think is very interesting, certainly because that's the age of women that are probably going to be, you know, professional athletes and that sort of thing. And I think also like on the level of, you know, for a while now, or not so much in our sport, but in other sports, there's been a problem for women, female athletes uh, called the, the female triad, they call it. Okay. But it's when women start to get so skinny and they lose their periods. And then that contributes to, they, they lose bone mass, uh, they're anorexic. Okay. You know, all these awful things going on because, you know, that happened in a lot of sports where sometimes like gymnastics, where like the women wanted to be so like low in body mass mm-hmm. to be able to, to compete effectively. And then they'd go on this, you know, horrible side effects of things and, and they would lose their periods. And then a lot of times the treatment for that would sometimes be forms of birth control. Got it. To get the hormones back and you know interesting back to levels. So I think that's a you know, I don't think that's as I haven't seen as much of that effect in like now, you know, our sports, CrossFit right. and now that women are getting more interested in having muscle mass where mm-hmm. it's not like, no, I have to be super low weight. It's uh, more like no, I want the mass that, you know, serves me well. And so I don't think you see as much of that female triad thing in, right. in these types of athletes. But on the other end, like, does this somehow tie into this, uh, that, that myth, right? That, oh my gosh, strength training is going to make you super bulky, right? It's going to make you huge, like a bodybuilder. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned how in, in males, testosterone is you know tenfold higher, mm-hmm. and, and females still have testosterone, but it's in very low yeah, levels, right? Yeah, it's, it's lower levels, but they also say they're somewhat more sensitive to it. Got it. So yeah, I think testosterone in women is another really interesting you know topic to look into and how that that affects their training. I mean, certainly you know when women go on anabolic, you know testosterone yeah. analog steroids you see, you know, it becomes a lot more obvious, right. I think, because they'll have a lowering of their voice, they might get facial hair, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but their natural levels, like what do those do? And, you know, and how is like a woman with higher natural testosterone, like got performance advantages, I think is an interesting question as well. Um, so what do we know at the moment maybe about like these natural levels of testosterone in women and how that kind of, um, I guess, affects training in a sense, right? Yeah, like yeah when we're, pre- pre- pretty minimal, you know? Okay, because <laughs> yeah. I don't know where I heard this. Um, I'm probably butchering it, but like the level, you know how you mentioned that metric for the level of testosterone that uh, males typically have? Mm-hmm. And if we were to use that same metric for the level that women have, it's so drastically different uh, mm-hmm. that, you know. Well, the, the women's testosterone is actually measured in the same unit 
the nanogram per deciliter but it's like you know all way way lower it's way way lower right so does that impact like you would really have to try uh, to get huge if if that was something that you were going after, right? Like mm-hmm. that doesn't just happen from you sure. uh, doing you know three by five and three. Yeah. By, like, oh, exactly. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, heavy, it's, it's, it's not sure, sure. it's not uh, yeah. physiologically possible. No, no, no. Unless you start doping yourself. Exactly. You know? yeah, yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So that's another interesting thing to kind of dig into. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. And I mean, I think that perception is changing. Yeah. And yeah, you know. No, you're not going to look like a super bulky bodybuilder, but you are going to get shoulders. You yeah. are going to, you know, like, uh, you know, have, and, have, yeah. a, have a bigger build. And I think more women are starting to want that, which right. is pretty awesome. You Definitely. know, uh, it's not just, oh, I want to be toned. It's like, no, I actually want to have like muscle mass. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. So is there anything that, um, from your perspective, right, that I'm missing and I, I should be asking that maybe listeners would want to know a little bit more about based off what we kind of touched on oh man um yeah we went through a lot yeah i always get lost in some of the stuff sometimes. <laughs> i'll always think about something later down the line it's right like, oh, i wish i'd said something about that you know yeah uh sometimes it's a little overwhelming just how much is out there um yeah yeah, I mean, I think I touched on most of we the did, things yeah. we wanted cool. to. Cool, and we'll keep an eye out for, like, questions and things like that. I know we mm-hmm. have the live turned on. I can't really see if there are any questions or whatever. But, oh, okay. um, yeah, maybe we can um, continue the conversation another, like, another time. Yeah, for sure. But I would love sure. to dig into some of my rapid fires to kind of uh, conclude oh, yeah, here. Yeah, Right? <laughs> so, okay, let's go, let's go with you had a couple billion dollars right? Mm -hmm. And you had a staff of 40 people. These 40 people are top performers, uh, elite thinkers in whatever it is that you are recruiting them for. And you want to make some type of impact or some type of change uh, with those resources. What would you do with it? Well, you know, certainly as a scientist, very frustrated with the, you know, the methods that we get funding or Mm -hmm. the, you know, sources that we get funding. Um, it'd be really cool to set up some sort of research center that is oriented around the questions I'm interested in. Yeah. Maybe that's kind of selfish, but you know, I hey, think you they, can do whatever they, you want they, with yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, to go after those types of knowledge that uh, traditionally, you know, the NIH doesn't see or doesn't have the vision to see right. what we're going after. You know, it isn't as much in the interest of companies that are trying to market a type of drug or a type mm-hmm. of product. Um, but I, you know, I, I really feel like what we're doing, people out there, out there are other people are interested. In oh, absolutely. It. It, I think it's, it's a type of research that people can immediately relate to Yeah. and they can realize the need for it. And so it's interesting. Andy had this idea last fall, which we explored ultimately ended up being a lot more work than we anticipated. We learned a lot from the process, but we did a crowdfunding grant. Okay. You know, yeah, yeah. He we, mentioned something. Yeah, about yeah. Um, and we, we, we got it in the end. We were able to use it to fund uh, some of Jimmy's work to buy this last part for this confocal microscope that he needed to construct that you know, would finally let them do a lot of the cool things he wanted to do. So it was like, it was like really well spent funding for science like it wasn't going to be wasted on stuff that wasn't working it was actually used for a piece of equipment Uh, so you know that was another realm we looked at but again in this day and age like there's other ways of getting 
to people in alternative types of media. Yeah. And when people get interested in this stuff, like if they, you know, if they hear about it on some podcast that mm -hmm. has like millions of you know, listeners right. who are interested in the same topics, you know, who are interested in humor performance and yeah. some of the most popular podcasts out there are really interested in that. So yeah, if, if you, if you, if you get the right message across to people and you get the right audience and you get people interested, I mean, that would be a super cool way, you know, if you had it set up in the right way and you market it in the right way right. to solve the problem of like the government's not interested in funding yeah. us, you know, companies aren't interested in funding us. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, yeah, you hashtag find a way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, isn't that interesting? I mean, just the change in technology and change in culture with like social media and things like that and, and this medium that we're kind of communicating oh, yeah. on right now, yeah. um, how much that impacts everything else as well, right? Like, like you said, nothing is black and white. <laughs> That's a funny squeaking sound in the background there. <laughs> um, but nothing is black and white and everything like in biology, like you said, is kind of connected and it's, yeah. and so it's, it's funny to me, it's similar, like Joe Rogan, for example, I, I think he has like, what, 90 million downloads yeah. per month or something like that. In, a, in the US, there's like, what, 330 million plus people. That's yeah. like a third of the nation, right? And yeah. like, if you were able to get something like that across, and not even, I'm not sure. saying just to that audience yeah. or that size, but it's like, yeah, like you said, the MMA um, uh, fighter who was super interested and wants Dr. Galpin to do more research on females, like when you start to get that kind of buzz going and there's yeah. interest around it, yeah. uh, you never know what can kind of come about. Oh, exactly. And that's what, I mean, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Like mm -hmm. I, I've never felt in my life this sense of, you know, uh, that I'm running down a dream in yeah. a way that I'm fully exploring my own potential. That mm -hmm. was definitely something I learned throughout, you know, the past five years that I've been here or seven years that I've been here in San Diego, but like six, five or six of them at Invictus yeah. and just doing that whole process through grad school. Like I've actually, I told people straight up, like, I don't think I would have finished my PhD had I not found Invictus. Yeah. There's something uh, that it really gave me um, in terms of fostering mental toughness, yeah, which we talked yeah. about and like how CJ, like, you know, wants to relate people's mindsets that they developed in the gym mm -hmm. to apply to other parts of their life. And, you know, again, science is this incredibly frustrating process that doesn't cooperate right. a lot of the time. And, um, you know, you'll get stuck working on a project that your advisor's interested in that isn't going anywhere and dealing, like, I've always been kind of a goal-oriented person. Dealing with that failure for multiple years was just, like, to have, like, a place like Invictus to come and throw around some weight and meet, like, some of my best friends here, yeah. you know. Uh, ultimately, like, I'd say Invictus has given me, kind of connected me to all of the most important things in my life right now in yeah. San Diego. You know, um, my research, like I found all of this through getting connected into training, mm -hmm. then starting to listen to podcasts that were related to training, and then figuring out a way that what I learned in my PhD could contribute to my personal interests. It's sure. like a really unique opportunity. Um, but then, you know, I've met like, again, a lot of my best friends here. I've met my boyfriend here, I, uh, you know, obviously I've got great, you know, personal health, you know, benefits from it yeah. and, uh, just, but again, the mindset, 
that that change and sort of like okay like I really can go after this sure. I can kind of want to explore my full potential yeah and that's so amazing. it's it's cool to be able to do that in in the medium that I am now and to work with somebody like Andy who um, is very open-minded is very different than any other academic mm-hmm. professor out there that I've met you know uh, is very skilled at communicating to the public yeah is you know trust my expertise you know being that I come from a different field and that we're doing a lot of biochemistry stuff like I don't feel like I'm working for him. I feel like I'm working with him. Like, like it's a, team, a true yeah. team collaboration, which is a really great feeling. And especially considering like most postdoc experiences out there, like it's terrible. It's like you're a slave for yeah. your professor. Right. <laughs> and you do whatever like awful project they have as part of their grant and that they have funding for and you're miserable and yeah. that sort of thing. Like if you had asked me like, I don't know, you're two two years ago maybe or like when I was finishing up my PhD it's like are you, are you gonna do a postdoc be like hell no <laughs> yeah it's but, fascinating uh, how yeah. like we just said you know everything is connected right you mm-hmm. being able to come to Invictus led yeah. to so many other things yeah. and um, yeah I'm excited to see what else you guys uncover yeah, I mean, it's years. a long road. There's still a lot of challenges yeah. thrown at us, you know, from the nitty gritty, like, shipping mishaps things right. that you deal with and to, like, the larger scale, like, funding yeah. uh, challenges. But, you know, we, we're, we're determined. Yeah. And, you know, we we really believe in what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Awesome. So let's say that you still had a uh, couple billion dollars. You're still okay. a billionaire, right? Oh, yeah. We're going back to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to escape that. <laughs> and uh, you could give uh, two to three books to every person in the world. Oh, oh, right? this is how we're going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So w- what would they be? And they don't have to be training-related, science-related, anything. Just yeah. what, what comes to mind for you? That's that's a tough one. So I will I will go out there and say like straight off, I am a terrible reader. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason I went to like go study math and science in college and university. I was like, I don't want to read a ton of books. Right. <laughs> of course, I have to read science papers, yeah. but uh, it's a little different. Yeah, I don't know. I'm a very slow reader actually, okay. and I actually like I have a short attention span. So it's rare that I find a book that like I like finish mm-hmm. all the way through so let's do this right yeah. it could be books sure it could yeah be any other medium it could be because uh, people consume um things differently right some people prefer to watch videos for you know gaining their information some like to listen to podcasts yeah. and books yeah so what three resources right sure. that you would love to send out to every person in the world uh, what would they be uh, well, that's a tough one I mean again like because people need different things yeah. that are in different parts of the world um, I mean certainly the gift of coming to a gym like this like I mean outside of like you know looking at it as a book or a, you know or video or something like that there's just so much you get out of being in a community of people that are all oriented around the same value and like having the courage to come into this place like I think is some some what limits some people in some of the times or they're like, Oh, I'm not fit enough. Or, you know, I don't know if I'd fit in there, but like when they actually do step out of that, then, you know, they get so much out of the experience. So, so like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. If, if everyone could have like a place like this and maybe it doesn't need to be a gym. I mean, I think I understand I've never been religious, but I understand now why 
people like going to church. Right. It's kind of a community similar, and yeah. all those aspects. And it has to be like the right number of people. Like right. if, I think they say they've even looked at this like relative to, you know, what our ancestors had their tribes yeah, as. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's like a forget what number it is, but it's something like two hundred to three hundred. Okay. Where it's like enough people that you you know you are meeting new people but you also like know most everybody sure is like where you really connect with people yeah very fascinating uh so uh is there something that you feel like you don't get asked get asked enough about and something you wish maybe people would ask you more yeah so that's a tough one i mean it, it sometimes it depends on what mood I'm in. Okay. Like, uh, I, you know, like people would think, oh, you want to be asked about your research. You know, that's right. a great question. And sometimes when it's going badly, I'm like, oh, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely since I love what I'm doing more now, certainly way more than I was in grad school. I do like talking about, you know, what we're doing, what we're exploring. Uh, the types of paradigms we want to change, um, for sure. That's yeah. that's a great thing. You know, we just want to spread the word about that in in all sense. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, is there something as we were kind of talking today that uh, came across as kind of new to you? Something you may have kind of uh, uncovered or learned about yourself as you were kind of going through it? Um, yeah, I think it went better overall than. I, I thought it could have gotten. Okay. Right? I thought I could have gotten. Good to hear. At, at, at some point, this is again my first podcast, but yeah. I definitely want to do more of this because yeah. I think it's a really good exercise. Again, communicating science to the public, mm -hmm. uh, learning from you know how you are as a speaker, and you know that's that's ultimately like what you have to do. You have to go out and speak about your research. Sure. If you're going to get it funded, if you're going to make you know collaborations happen that sort of thing yeah and again like you know it's it's you know one skill talking to your peers uh which actually there are a lot of scientists that can't really do that either right they're terrible presenters <laughs> and you know even if you're in the same field you're just like oh i'm so turned off by yeah. this you know, or they just like when you hear them talk about it they're not like engaged or sounding excited about it sure um but then it's another skill to be able to communicate to the public mm -hmm. and uh you know that's again something i really want to keep learning from andy in in that sense yeah amazing yeah. i know we touched on a lot throughout yeah, this yeah. episode uh, we always do uh is there some what what is something that a coach or athlete or listener can kind of take away from this podcast and kind of use it to make themselves better Ooh, what would you like well, to leave with yeah again the results of what we're finding in, in science right now take a while to actually become translatable especially mm -hmm. for what what we're doing where it's going to study these molecules these you know properties of muscle cells which there's still so much unknown you know mm -hmm. and uh a long long process that it will, will be a while before we're directly able to um relate that to training applications or health applications right um, but I think just in general, like just thinking about science differently, like, and, and being more like having more, um, receptiveness towards like, okay, maybe I don't understand these words, but I can actually get the concepts. They're yes. there. Yeah. Um, I think people, you know, again, you, as the, the scientists, you want to try and avoid jargon mm -hmm. as best you can. And I really try and do that when I'm talking to general public, it's kind of easier to rely on the jargon but that's what turns people off. 
but if you can engage them more in that sense and uh you know i think with with coaches and athletes like i think a lot of people wonder about the same things that i have like yeah. you know there's like superheroes walking around us right now. like what's going on with them or, yeah. or why does this guy recover way faster than i do you know Absolutely. maybe he has really high testosterone or something or mm -hmm. or what's going on with his muscle fiber type that's different than mine right you know or allows him or her to grow more muscle faster or something like that yeah yeah amazing awesome well um thank you so much for coming on where can we support you where can we find you where can we kind of uh you know follow along with your journey yeah so i would say um definitely following andy will probably like I don't have many Instagram followers and it's mostly just like, you know, pictures of fun <laughs> yeah. things that I'm doing. Right. I don't post as much as he does about mm -hmm. the actual science that we're doing, but he definitely at Dr. Andy Galpin on Instagram or Twitter um, will post a lot of, you know, uh, not just studies we're doing, but a lot of like breaking down uh, other studies related to training in a way that people can get something out of it. Um, he's also been working on a website. I mean, he does so much stuff. I don't know how he keeps yeah, up right? with all the projects he I does. Know. Like, he's like a full-time professor who has to teach, who also has to do like the academic bureaucracy stuff that right. none of them like, and then research, like getting grants funded. And then he does all these podcasts, like books, everything, seminars outside of yeah. that. It's just, it's nuts. Superhuman. Um, yeah, for <laughs> sure. But yeah, so he's he's been working on a website where he's been posting a lot of the videos that we've done on, on talks or things that he's done in the past. And those are really great to check out. I'd, I'd even watch some of them before I jumped on board. Um, certainly following him on Barbell Shrugged since mm -hmm. he's a more regular guest on that podcast now. Uh, but yeah, I hope to be on more podcasts yeah. in the future and, and continue uh, talking about this stuff and you know hopefully translate some of these ideas to to get a better platform in the future yeah definitely what was the name of the site that uh doctor for that we can point people to for Dr. Oh, Andy Galpin? oh yeah it's like andygalpin.com got it it's, okay it's pretty easy to and find. Uh, if people have any questions uh for you is there a place that they can connect with you or would you like them to send them sure i mean yeah i'm i've got an open profile on instagram cool. you can always send me a message there and what's maybe, your maybe uh, what's to... your handle there oh i'm dr irene to buy it Tobias. Got it. Cool. Yeah. I'll, I'll link that up in the yeah. show notes. Um, awesome. Well, once again, thank you so much for doing this. It was a blast chatting with sure. you. I feel like Me I too. learned yeah. a ton. This yeah. is one of those episodes you're going to like want to go back to and like re-listen because there's definitely... Yeah. I hope I didn't speak too fast. Nah. You're right. You're right. Good. <laughs> awesome. Well, once again, thank you so much and maybe we can do this again sometime. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Once again, I highly appreciate the time, the energy, the attention, and the support that you give each and every week listening to these episodes. I hope you were able to walk away with something useful from this one, um, or at least entertained by it. One request I have for you is to head over to theairbornemind.com and take a couple minutes, just leave a review with your thoughts. You have no idea how much that would mean to me. Next, please head over to theairbornemind.com, check out the three-day sample programs. Um, you can use this stuff as accessory work to supplement your existing training. Um, of course, each individual is a little bit different, and so we have um, ones that are specific to uh, pull-ups, if that's something you're working on, one that's specific to handstand push 
push-ups, one that's specific to pistols, shoulder stability. So go see if that is relevant to you. Uh, once again, that is theairbornemind.com. If you ever have any questions, don't hesitate to reach out. I love hearing from you guys. Um, but thank you so much for joining me once again. Until next time.